welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. We're here with our latest town hall installment. My name is Michael Crawford. With me, as always, Jeff Crawford. Jeff, how are you today? Fine. How are you? <laughs> Pretty good. Sure as you're born. Um, we're here with part two of our talk with Scott Gerard. Jeff, this has been quite... Uh, an experience. Yes. Scott has an amazing career. I definitely recommend people listen to part one where he talks about his time at Disneyland and uh, early landscaping days of Walt Disney World through the first decade. Incredible snapshot of somebody who was on the ground and, uh, and saw a lot. Absolutely. Knew everybody and saw everything, but that's not all... He also worked on Epcot Center and Tokyo Disneyland and a lot more. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So without further ado, uh, let's see what Scott has to say. Uh, so in 1978, Epcot Center is announced and you get sent back to Glendale to work in the WED offices. What was that transition like for you? Um, well, it, uh, you know, Bill had retired, Bill Evans had retired and, um, I was able to, uh, snag him on a retainer so that, uh, you know, I had access to that, uh, wonderful, uh, uh, horticultural encyclopedic brain of his. And, um, so it was, you know, going back, you know, I'm a native Southern California, so it was kind of like going home for me mm-hmm. after having been in, uh, Florida for well, 10 years. Yeah, nine or 10 years. And, uh, but we were starting up the department anew, I mean, fresh, uh, at least in Glendale, uh, because up until that time, all of the investment had been pushed into Florida. So uh, sure, I had to, uh, I had to hire a staff and first young fellow I hired was a bright young Cal Poly grad, uh, Terry Palmer. And then I picked up uh Berge Behesnelian. I don't know if you guys have heard any of these names, but uh, mm-hmm. but they were the first two that, and we we worked together on on Epcot. And you know, six months after you know I got there, we signed the deal with the Japanese with the Mitsui Land Company. And yeah. uh, and I, I, you know, you've you've probably heard the terms of that deal, right? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And uh, they. Disney corporate, you know, made such outlandish, <laughs> outlandish uh, uh, requirements that, you know, that over the years, there'd been a lot of companies come to Disney and say, we want you to build a park in, in our country. And, and uh, you know, it's, of course, when Walt was around, that was never going to happen. And, and this looked like just another one of those. And um, Don Tatum, who was president at the time, or chairman of the board at the time, made these outrageous requirements. And, Mitsui Land Company said, okay, when can we talk? And <laughs> so that was six months after we started on Epcot. So, you know, we, we, the, both those parks were, were designed and developed in tandem, uh, parallel to each other, just six months apart, uh, both start and finish. So it was a, a rather busy, busy uh, four years. Yeah, amazing to me that, you know, Disney then was not the Disney in scope that we know today. Uh, Correct. For them to take on both of those projects uh, is is pretty incredible. Um, 
I mean, Epcot alone was a huge project. It was a real showcase for landscaping, world showcase. They had all kinds of different climates represented next to each other. Uh, How did the Epcot project stand out from what had happened previously? Well, it's um, a completely uh, you know different kind of project um, in that um, you know we we the, the wed everybody at wed you know had wrestled with this concept of uh, of uh, not so much world showcase because you know that's themed architecture Disney Disney knows that backwards and forwards but what was uh, future world going to be and how is that going to be represented and how is it going to be designed and you know at first it was. Uh, you know, all these various countries in this crescent that everyone had the same frontage, if you would, like a World's Fair uh, along this uh, uh, walkway. And, and the only difference would be the depth of the pavilion and depends on how much money you wanted to spend and or had to spend and invest and so forth. But in the end, it, it, it was basically two theme parks, the equivalent of two theme parks. And um, one is, uh, you know, future world, and the other is world showcase, and the transitions down to um, the, the forty-acre lake, you know, and the one-mile perimeter promenade around the lake and around world showcase. So you can literally walk around the world. For the showcase, did you do any overseas travel for research purposes, or was that? Yeah, yeah, no, no, we 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 did. I I did a fair amount. Um, we, of course, uh, mounted a, a team that went to uh, Bouchard Gardens in Victoria, uh, uh, yeah. Columbia. Um, I went with Ken Anderson. Um, Ken Anderson, Steve Baker, and I went to Africa for three weeks. Oh, wow. It was starting in uh, Dakar, across equatorial Africa, Dakar uh, uh, in West Africa, across to uh, uh, Nairobi in Kenya. Um doing research for the Africa Pavilion and Card Card was uh, he, he was he was very adamant he felt that Africa needed to have a presence but you know they, there was just no funding for it and Ken had designed a I mean just a fantastic dinner show for the Africa Pavilion and and um, it was all based on the heartbeat of it's called it was called the heartbeat of Africa which is music you know and um and the music of Africa and all of those wonderful native instruments, you know, would, would, you know, be on the walls around the, the dining room and, and uh, the music would come up and native, you know, and the dancers of, of, of the various tribes represented and, and nations represented in Africa and uh, just a fantastic show. And well, sadly it, it just didn't come to fruition, but uh, yeah, we spent three, uh, three, um, three weeks in Africa traveling across Africa and, doing research and whatnot, photo documentation. That must have been uh, quite an experience. Um, yeah, yeah, it was. That was my first trip to Africa. I think Ken, that was Ken's fifth trip to Africa. It was my first. And uh, subsequent to that on other projects, I, I think I've been to Africa like five times. So um, That uh, pavilion, that Africa pavilion is kind of a famous a famous thing since it was, it was so heavily promoted at the time and then didn't, then didn't happen. Um, I just wondered if you tell us a little more about Ken Anderson and that project. Well, Ken, you know, was, you know, his roots with the company um, and a very, very creative guy. And like I say, he had this show, uh, this dinner show and theater 
designed and, and we had the pavilion designed and, um, you know, an African, uh, various African uh, environment, uh, horticultural environments, you know, as you arrive and depart the pavilion and what the pavilion looked like, the landscape looked like out along the promenade. And, but again, sadly, it just, it just didn't occur. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, Ken was, you know, Ken was just, uh, I would say he was, he was heartbroken because it was such a good show. Uh, everybody agreed it was, but there just wasn't funding for it. Right, right. Uh, another big horticultural element of Epcot was the land pavilion, of course. Uh, yes. In, in doing research for that, Imagineers toured a number of major botanical gardens. What, what, we were, those, what were those trips like? Well, we took, um, I, I arranged with Card to take the company plane. Um, and we had uh, uh, a couple of uh, uh, researchers from University of Arizona, Tucson, who were consultants to the team. And George Terpazzi was the was the wet architect on the project. And Colin Campbell came along. And I'm trying to think who else was on the trip. But we visited, I think, five major major uh, biodomes, uh, controlled environment, growing growing environment uh, structures around the country. One was the St. Louis um, Biodome, Milwaukee, uh, Mitchell Botanic Garden, uh, Longwood Gardens, Denver. We were out in Denver. So, you know, we were we were blessed to be able to take the plane and and that allowed us to go and and stay and and you know as long as we wanted and and do all of the research in all these different locations and uh, uh and and then just not be burdened with you know commercial commercial travel. So sure. That was fun. We do. We yeah, we had oh and, and uh, you know we we'd gone back to to uh, British Columbia as well uh, to uh, to uh, Victoria, so you know it was it was fun to just have the the, the plane to our ac- you know access to a, to the company plane to Mickey Mouse. It was the old G one turbo prop. That that plane has lived lived so many lives. <laughs> it's part of <laughs> yeah, so many stories. It's, it's so true. Yeah, the plane with nine lives. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, was there anything on those trips that really sort of inspired you that maybe was something you brought back uh, that you used in in your work at Epcot? Well, yeah, sure. All of it. I mean, I, you know, there's lots of photo documentation and, and I would say Jenny Buchart's garden, uh, Buchart garden, um, uh, Jenny's garden, which is down in that uh, quarry. You, you guys have probably seen pictures of it. Uh, yes. But, mm-hmm. Yeah, Jenny's garden is a, a deep, deep quarry. And, um, you know, her husband had had been a granite and basalt. He was a miner, you know, and dug all this these ugly places. And she it just abhorred her to see what was left behind after uh, claiming all this uh, all this material out of the ground. And so she uh, she started hauling dirt down into the bottom and building planters and, hmm. and um, the ultimate, uh, you know, it took 30 years or so to build Bouchard Garden and it continues today, but it's, it's absolutely a magnificent place to be. Um, and I would, I would suggest if, if either of you, both of you, either of you have never been there, no. uh, it's one of the places that you, you should go. Um, uh, you, you could spend a beautiful day there and just uh, it's, it's stunning. Just stunning. 
I'd never known that story behind its creation. That's that's really interesting. And of course, you know, it gets its own uh, small recreation there. Uh, yes, at Epcot. It, it can, yes, in Canada. That's exactly mm -hmm. what we did. We we did some of that research. And of course, the mountain, you know, the, the, the uh, granite walls and so forth are replicated. Uh, the the, the uh, rock work that, that covers the Circle Vision Theater and and whatnot in that stream and waterfall. Um, I don't know. Have you guys ever seen how we put those trees up there in that rock work and all of that? No, tell us about that. Well, we, we put them in tubs and, you know, there, there was a rock work skin gonna, gonna cover the building. It would be a backdrop to the garden there in, in Canada. And of course, you know, that uh, you've got to have trees and, so we we designed locations uh, for these tree locations within that that rockwork mountain face of the rockwork. So the structural department designed all of the structural framework for these big giant. Well, they were fiberglass tubes. We initially thought maybe we could use some concrete conduit tubes, but that was too heavy. We used landed on some fiberglass uh, tubs that were. Uh, three and four, five feet across and four or five feet deep, rather massive in and of themselves. And uh, there are probably 15, 18 trees sprinkled all across the facade of that building. And and uh, they those uh, tubs were plumbed for drainage uh, so the plants wouldn't drown and they were plumbed for irrigation. And, and um, but you can't see any of this, you know, the guests don't see any of that. It's all behind that, uh, at uh, scratch coat rock work and uh, well i would imagine that would have to be maintained to keep keep the trees within scale over the years yes yeah. yeah and of course we started you know with very very uh, small trees at the top and somewhat larger trees at the bottom to force that perspective but um, but yeah and a few of them have been replaced over time but uh yeah you're right it, it takes it takes uh, uh some maintenance to do that I know at one point uh, prior to opening at Canada, they had installed artificial, I don't know whether they were redwoods, some kind of large, large trees over there. Those didn't last very long. No, no. Um, and that idea was Ahmad Jafari, who was, the, uh, I guess you could say he was the production designer on the pavilion. Um, we had seen those in a, in a museum there, um, in uh, in uh, uh, Victoria, when we were there on a research trip, and uh, and uh, Ahmed just felt, gosh, we got to have these big these big redwoods, you know, and and I'm thinking, you know, they they just seem so out of scale. I think we had three of them on the original plan, and you're right, they didn't last long. Hmm. Was it just a an aesthetic aesthetic thing? They didn't work in scale. They didn't. Yeah, they it it didn't work. It 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 just didn't work. Hmm. They just didn't look believable. I mean, uh, I gotcha. Uh, well, you know that that makes me wonder. I know for Epcot, a big thing was, you know, it required a lot of artificial trees for inside these attractions. Did the landscaping side, you guys who worked with real plants, did you consult at all on the artificial sort of fake tree farm <laughs> that they had? Um, no, you know, we've got, we've got a great staff shop, you know, these, these, you know, the guys up in the staff shop, they, they can do anything, 
you know, they may they may make a call and say, what you know, what species you know should we use, and and they just replicate it. I mean, oh, they didn't okay. help from us for that. Oh, uh, I gotcha. But uh, but uh, yeah, Hank Robitaille, um, Dr. Robitaille, he was the, the driving force behind all of the the uh, crops that were being grown. You know, the the, the agriculture and horticulture uh, within the land pavilion. Well, tell tell me more a little more about him because he's a a, a very prominent name that comes up a lot w- with the land and was very influential in that. Well, I haven't seen Hank in a long time, but but he he really was uh, the driving force for Disney on the Disney side. Uh, we brought Hank on, uh, as I recall, to uh, to to be the the company uh, you know driving the, the company bus uh, as far as that's concerned, and um, and he he. Also brought on um, um, as a consultant, uh, Dr. Carl Hodges uh, from University of Arizona, Tucson, and their uh, agricultural lab. And, and um, the big project that uh, Carl Hodges was working on at the time was um, aquaculture mm. and growing fish, tilapia to begin with, uh, which you know people hadn't heard a lot of back in the late 70s. Uh, but Carl Hodges and his group at, at uh, Arizona, uh, University of Arizona, had been growing uh, aquaculture, growing these fish to feed, you know, the hungry parts of the world that really don't have a whole lot um, because they, they, uh, they procreate quickly, they grow quickly, and it's a, it's a high protein. And uh, so... Uh, it, that's part of what they were doing with um, that Hank brought them on t- for the aquaculture part of of the show uh, and the story within the land pavilion. And of course, and it included shrimp as well. So it was tilapia and shrimp. And um, they were growing shrimp uh, in an aquaculture research program down in Puerto Penasco, Mexico. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and it was funded uh, supported financially by the Coca-Cola Corporation. Uh, and um, so when you, uh, and I haven't been in the show for a long time to know if they're still, they're still showing tilapia and, and, and uh, shrimp, but um, uh, that, was the, that was the go-to uh, aquaculture protein uh, that could be easily grown in controlled conditions and farmed and uh, farm-raised and, and harvested. Uh, and um, so it was, uh, it, it was very, very interesting time uh, to be a part of that. And, you know, we had flown down to Puerto Penasco to look at their, their, their uh, research facility down there. It's Puerto Penasco is at the very northern tip of the, um, um, uh, the where Baja California meets uh, the main part of Mexico. Oh, okay. Sea of Cortez, right at the top of the Sea of Cortez. So... Not far from Tucson, you know. It's across the border. It's I don't know, maybe a hundred miles south of the border. It's funny you mentioned the tilapia because that's something that I always uh, Epcot was the first place that I ever saw tilapia being <laughs> yeah. raised, obviously, and uh, first <laughs> I ever heard of it. And yeah. so now these days, it's everywhere in restaurants, and it always oh, makes yeah. me think of Epcot because <laughs> that was the first place you ever saw it. Yeah, I you know sometimes. You know, I found myself in restaurants, you know, and I'll say, well, what's your, what's your catch of the day? And somebody will say tilapia. <laughs> Give me a break. 
Uh-huh. Well, yeah, uh, Carl Hodges, who you mentioned, uh, was a big uh, a big name that was brought in on that. Uh, you know, what else did he bring to the table as far as uh, consulting on what you guys were doing? Well, they they you know it was the whole uh, uh, ag lab you know Department of Agriculture there, and and uh, they they provided uh, a lot of support. Uh, Mickey Fontes, Dr. Fontes. Um, uh, with regard to uh, horticulture and uh, growing environments and their research with regard to uh, weightless, weightless growing uh, mm-hmm. and, and uh, hydroponic growing, you know, soilless growing. And, and, you know, you've seen that whole conveyor thing with the, the plants and the, and the bare roots that are hanging down and mm-hmm. you know, through this uh, car wash kind of contraption to, you know, with, it sprays nutrients and moisture onto the bare roots, and uh, and of course the spinning drum of uh, of uh, lettuce. Uh, yes. To replicates the the weightlessness. You know you you know it, it's it's um, so that you know there's a lot of research going on things like that back then. Well, that's very interesting that all all that I mean it made it into the pavilion and was such a. You know, it was in all the publicity, all the promo vi- films they put out would show these things. And so it really was interesting in how Epcot served to make these things a public, uh, public-facing thing. Well, and, you know, p- part of the pavilion, too, was entertainment, uh, kitchen cabaret and, you know, talk, you know, just, you know, some, like Wally used to say, nobody wants to be preached to, you know, they don't want to, you know, to be educated. Let's, let's, you know, entertain them and teach them something. And, uh you know, Kitchen Cabaret talks about uh, the four food groups and the, and the, you know protein and how important each food group is one to another and uh, to the human body and you know it's just a lot of a great fun show but a lot of good information that gets passed along as well. Mm-hmm. Well, what was it like working with Raleigh? Raleigh? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, Raleigh's great. He's great. You know, I just uh, he was. Uh, uh, kind of a wild man. He just, you know, he'd been around so long, you know, and he'd been in and out of the company a few times. And but he just absolutely one of the most creative guys I've ever run across, if not the most creative. I mean, he just he viewed the world differently than anybody else I've ever. Known. <laughs> and maybe and a a little bit. I, I would describe another person, um, Walt Paraguay. Um, oh yes. Uh-huh. Walt, uh, Walt viewed the world a little differently than everybody else. Um, but again, a, just a creative genius, uh, supremely talented. Uh, you know, the design that he, that he had for the, the mosaic walls at the land pavilion are absolutely stunning. Uh, oh, yes. uh, yeah, but Rolly is, uh, you know, there's a one and only Rolly Crump. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and well, you know, and while Paraguay, uh, very much a character uh, in his own in his own right, and and that mural uh, there was so much. Uh, the interface between the landscaping and the architectural design over there uh, was, I mean, the plantings uh, and landscaping around the land, leading up the way it built into the architecture. Right, uh, you guys must have interfaced a whole lot on that. Oh yeah, yeah, we did with Walt quite a bit, quite a bit. And um, you know, when you go back and look at the original photos of not long after the park or the park opened, 
you know, we we had that that there was a row of oak trees back up way up slope, and the idea was to knock down the building, the architecture of that building, other than the the central crown, uh, and we began shearing those those oak canopies into clouds, into big green clouds, you know, that kind of move mm. lots of rolls and dips and things like that. And uh, then you just had the trunks fall out of these clouds down to the ground. And and then, of course, the, the overall design of those large, massive spaces on either side of the entryway, uh, you know, just kind of just kind of peeled and replicated some of that striated look on the on the on the um, the mural, you know, the, the striations of the Earth's crust. And so, you know, big swaths of uh, bold colors and, and uh, uh, you know, just a lot of movement, you know, in the landscape. Absolutely. Well, that, that uh, leads me to something that I was wondering about your thought process in designing future world landscape overall. It's so, you, you kind of mentioned that World Showcase was something that Disney had done before. Future World was something very different from Disneyland or the Magic Kingdom. It's almost a world's fair. You've got these big buildings. You've got this futuristic theme. Uh, what was the thought process in designing that that landscape? Well, we knew um, if you if you look at a plan, you, if you look at an aerial or a plan of, of World Showcase, you, you readily see that there's three distinct uh, exterior spaces uh, in that park. One is the central core, the Communicore, mm-hmm. uh, which is all changing now, apparently. Yes. <laughs> On the west side, what we call West West Court, um, is the land pavilion and imagination, uh, and then later on, the sea pavilion. Um, and we approached, looking at these two large East Court and West Court, we didn't want them to be the same on either side. We, as we looked at these these uh, plans that we were, you know, contemplating, and so we began to focus on a curvilinear form for area development, meaning planting space and walkways and uh, water features and things like that uh, on the ground plane. And um, over on the east court, where you know you had that very strict structure for energy, um, angular structure, later on horizons. And of course, world of motion was circular, which was a nice counterpoint juxtaposition visually to uh, to uh, energy uh, in, the same, in the same large space. We took a more uh, rectilinear uh, direction with, with the design of the area development. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, it would be very, very evident if you could see it on a on a on an aerial photograph that uh, mm-hmm. we, we designed the uh, the curvilinear spaces, nice curving walkways. We had round, circular, stack planters. Uh, we called them tiddlywinks, stack stack tiddlywinks. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would, it would stack over one over the other partially, and and. Um, and uh, so, and then the, the waterway that, that works its way all, the, or it did used to work its way all the way through from, from north to south through that side of the, of, of, of the uh, court. And, um, uh, and then, of course, you know, that, you know, just looking at that, that area as, as a space. And then on the other side, 
everything is much more regimented. Uh, you know, even you know the plantings of of trees that are in bosques, and uh, you know we had a, a whole three or four row bosque of of uh, eucalyptus that we pruned way way tall, almost something you might see um, as a characterization of of some of the trees and. Sleeping Beauty, you know, they're just mm-hmm. these long, tall poles with a, just a just a whiff of foliage at the top. But they were all planted in, in um, formal, regimented rows, and uh, so it was, you know, just everything over there was uh, was was more regimented. The hands of man, you know, and the planting and so forth. So, two different steps, two different spaces. We we didn't want the guests to move from east to west and west to east. And see the same things, get the same sense of space. We wanted it to be a different experience for the guests. That makes sense, and I can totally see that uh, on the west side. You have a lot of water uh, with those sort of uh, creek rock, almost rocks at the bottom, yes. and yes, large river rock. Yeah, river yeah. rock. And uh, on the east side, I think of a lot of topiary on the east side are, you know, um, shaped plants to match horizons, to match energy. Um, that sticks out in my memory, at least. Yes, yes, that's correct. That's correct. Now, we did have some fun with some with some plants up, you know, and uh, toward uh, imagination. You know, we, we did some weird things up there with some plant materials and trees that we sheared and made, you know, multiple pyramids and, you know, some discs and hockey pucks and things like that. But the real winner in that space, especially the exit garden, uh, because it was just going to be a transitory space where guests leaving the, the show, the 3D theater, were just going to walk through that place and, and that's out exterior space and leave the pavilion and go down the ramp, leave the pavilion. And, and that's when, you know, Mark Fuller and his genius with the, Laminar flow fountains came into play, and and um, you know the rest is history. Right. I mean, it, it it just energized and vitalized that uh, that 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 exit garden. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned this garden at, at the end of our last episode, and this is something. This is one of those things that really sticks out in memory. And when you look <laughs> at people's um, people's vacation photos from that time. This was something that everybody everybody took pictures from in Epcot. Uh, it was a really innovative area, but also very whimsical. And uh, I, I don't know. I would imagine this is one of those areas where you had to work with a bunch of other disciplines on putting this this area together. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean we we had designed we had designed the planters in a way, you know, that uh, would kind of guide, you know, this, this, this theater, you know, is at, at the end of the show, the theater doors open and, you know, the theater belches all these people out into this courtyard area that's um, exterior space. And uh, so the idea is not just dump them onto a, onto a plain plaza, um, but we designed the planters so that the guests could flow and follow the planters around and um, we really didn't change the the the, uh, the configuration of those planters much. Uh, that was pretty much done, and and Mark and his guys just adapted, you know, how far they were going to throw 
throw that slug of water. <laughs> you know, they can point them anywhere. And uh, so uh, that's that's what makes it so much fun is you just never know. You know, the guests come out of there and this, this water's leaping from one planter to another and disappearing. And the next thing you know, it's hopping out again and off to off in another direction. And I mean, it just hops around the garden. And uh, so it uh, really fun. And that's one of the places, you know, I talked last time we were together about, uh, um, you know, did I ever go out in the park and just hang out and listen? Well, that's one of the places that I always love to go and just stand around and just watch and listen to guests. I would imagine, yeah, that would be fun. I also imagine that's an area that had to be heavily, uh, the plantings had to be very guest-proofed because not only do you have this water raining down on everything, but you have people climbing all over everything. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, uh, we had originally planted, uh, I'm trying to think, we I think we planted some uh, oriope in in there and uh, that didn't stand the test of time. So we put something a little hardier I think the last thing I saw that was in there was some uh, dwarf Asian jasmine that will cover up and make a carpet kind of. Mm, yes. Very, very tough. Yeah. Very tough. But yeah, you know, you can't you can't keep guests out of it. There's no there's no uh, railings that I recall uh, that they had put up on those planters, and and uh, so a guest would have to step up into that planter to try to get a face full of water. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, did you have any other favorite areas of landscaping in in that park in Epcot? Um, yeah, the Japanese Garden I think is one of, was one of my favorites. Of course, uh, the Bouchard Garden at Canada. That Japanese Garden is beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it, um, and of course, you know, you have you have to remember we were designing Tokyo Disneyland at the same time, and uh, so I was commuting between Los Angeles and Orlando and uh, Los Angeles and Tokyo. Oh, wow. Yeah. So for four years, I did that for four years. And, and uh, so while I was in Tokyo, you know, I'd take pictures, I'd go to these traditional gardens and I'd take pictures and, you know, and bring them back and we'd include, you know, traditional details, you know, fencing details or wall details or uh, bamboo screen wall details, uh, you know, things like that. And uh, so uh, a lot of the, the, the information in the Japanese garden is information that I brought back from real Japanese gardens in, in Tokyo and Osaka. Hmm. While, I, while, I'd be, while I was in Japan, you know, we were doing other, you know, working on Tokyo Disneyland. So, um, and the China Water Garden, I think, has, has turned out to be lovely as well. Oh, yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. And that's something uh -huh. that always really shines when they do the flowering garden. They always have some special plantings over there. It looks really nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Japan, I always think, uh, one of my favorite places anywhere in the parks is there at the top. They have the little restaurant up on the hill, and there's uh, a nice water feature up there. Yes. And the gardens around that, that kind of cascade down. That's a yeah. wonderful area. Up at the Katsura. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, lovely spot. Yeah. Lovely spot. Well, there have been a lot of uh, sort of signature plantings in the parks. Uh, I think of at Epcot, I think there was that Senegal date palm that was behind Spaceship Earth for so many years. 
Um, yes. Are, are there any plantings in particular from Epcot that really stand out in your mind, uh, sort of distinctive things that you guys did? Well, that's one of them. I mean, that, that big monster came, we had to bring it in in two pieces. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. We, we had to cut it, cut the root ball in two and haul it down the road in two pieces. It was too big to haul down the road in one piece. Oh, wow. That's, cert- that's certainly one. Uh, the other was the, um, the, uh, the, the large, tall Washington palm bouquets uh, that frame um, Spaceship Earth. Oh, mm. yes, mm-hmm. yes. Um, and um, those we collected, um, and most of them came from <laughs> around um, the old Dr. Phillips packing house <laughs> on uh, Old Winter Garden Road before they realigned it and tore the old packing house down. Um, there were probably a dozen of those there, and we went after them, and we were able to procure them, and and uh, then we found, and we found a few others. You know, we, we, the, the, my my vision of this of that those two bouquets was, if you were to, you know, if you were to be walking along, in a field of say, flowers, you know, that might be up to your waist, mm-hmm. walking along, and you reach down and you, run your hand right through that bunch of flowers, and you pull up a bouquet of posies. You know, just some of these flowers that mm-hmm. you just only pulled off the plants. Well, what would you have? You'd have some that are taller than others and some that are, because you, you know, you just grabbed them. And that's kind of how I, I wanted to compose both of those bouquets. So you see them stepping from, from the closer to the, to the to spaceship Earth, they're a little lower, and then they step higher and higher, and then they step away. So that there are two bouquets that, you know, they, they were never meant to, to be the same height. They were never meant to be the same exact bouquet, but we wanted them to appear uh, to be similar. And um, that, that's always been one of my favorite parts of the, of the landscape as well. It's rather large scale. You can't appreciate them and, until, you, you know, once you get there and you come through the turnstiles and you're, you know, on the far north end of that uh, entry court between the turnstiles and spaceship earth. And then of course you, you can get this uh, magnificent view of the, of the framing of the of spaceship earth. Ball. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, that entrance statement of that entire area was always so striking uh, the, the beds that they had there and then leading yeah. up to those poems. Uh, one of the, one of my favorite things about the sort of rehabs they've been working on in recent years is bringing back the, the, planting to that area i hope they do <laughs> yeah because those those beds in front of spaceship earth were always uh yeah. such an important part of that landscape well yeah and you know we we originally on on the on the planters there's the one large center planter and then there are the other planters that kind of funneled you uh underneath uh, spaceship earth toward the the bouquets of large palms you know, we had uh, jacaranda trees, flowering purple jacaranda trees. Mm. And, uh, you know, they created a, a, a rather large uh, umbrella-shaped canopy. And when they were in bloom, I mean, they would, it was a showstopper. I mean, absolutely fantastic. And, um, and you know, 
just incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's beautiful. Was that date palm that you had to move in two pieces, was that raised on the tree farm or did you get that somewhere else? No, it was not raised on the tree farm. We found it, if I recall correctly, we found it in Clearwater. Oh, wow. wow. Okay. Yeah, how do you go about finding that kind of stuff? I read a, a there was a mulberry tree, too, for China that was, I guess, got moved from New Jersey or something like that. Was Tony yeah. Virginia the tree farm guy at this point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tony found that up in um, New Jersey, I believe. Um, and it was... Uh, uh, weeping mulberry. Uh, and yeah, it was perfect. It was, I mean, perfect. how does that happen? How do you find something in New Jersey? Well, you know, you just, you look around and you listen and you have folks that, you know, and it's amazing. Yeah. And who's, you know, who's got weird stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you, when you go, when you think about something that's supposed to have a lot of character, that's been, you know, like in a Japanese garden, that's all twisted out of shape. You know, it's taken two centuries to get that to look that way. Sure. So what do you do when you're in a nursery that, you know, and again, the, the nursery industry was was better during Epcot than it was for Walt Disney World, mm. the commercial nursery industry. But there's still lots of nurseries that, you know, they'd have just, they'd have their regular stock and then they'd have what they call culls and, you know, they just had it just sitting there. And I, every nursery I went to, I said, now, what wouldn't you sell? What do you have <laughs> that you would never, you know, that you'd never think anybody would be interested in? And, you know, it might be, you know, something twisted up, and an old live oak that had been blown over and and uh, started growing again and, you know, just had a weird shape. It would be perfect for Big Thunder. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, and the same thing goes with, with big old junipers, you know, that, you know, they just get hacked up or split or, whatever and you do a little snip snip here and a snip snip there and pretty soon you've got a really nice uh, focal piece for the japanese garden for uh, the japan pavilion and so i mean things like that you know you just keep your eye out for things like that it's, it's got to be so neat for you to see i mean maybe it's maybe, maybe it's complicated to see uh these things mature, you know, over a course. I mean, you think about the trees that surround the parking lot at the TTC or the, you know, the oak trees at the back of Epcot, just growing and growing. And um, it's really interesting how that affects the space differently over time with a similar landscape design. There's no question about it. There's no question about it. And that, and that even goes for berms screening. Berm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, that, uh, you know, you, you start out with the only thing that, that's screening anything is a dirt. <laughs> right. right. So, some small trees. And, you know, a few years later, you've, you've got a, you've got a temperate forest and, uh, you know, it looks like the banks of the Missouri and, uh, you know, so, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty great. I mean, that's, that's one of the best parts that, and, you know, we always kind of talked about it. I know, you know, Bill mentioned it to me the first time I'd ever heard it and, I continue to pass it along to the young landscape architects that, that came on board after me. And, uh, and that is, you know, the, the great thing about what we do as landscape architects and, and as the, the landscape construction team and, and the landscape maintenance team is, is on opening day of a project is the worst <laughs> yeah. gonna look for what we did, you know? Yeah. When you think about a building that's all freshly painted and uh, 
the paving and the, you know, all these things, you know, they, you know, they age over time. Landscape matures over time. And uh, it only gets better. Only gets better. That's a great point. I mean, that's one of the most prescient things I think Walt ever said was in one of his quotes or interviews, he's like, the park is going to get more beautiful over the years because the plants are going to grow and the flowers, the trees are going to grow and everything. And uh, he was right. He was right. He was right. Yep. Yeah. So, the engineers, well, the company in general learned their lesson about, you know, if you remember me telling you the story about how they dug up the Seven Seas Lagoon and right. our gunk on the top. And we ended up having to replace just about every major tree at least once before opening. Um, uh, the company learned their lesson for Epcot and they uh, looked around and did some geotechnical studies and found some good good uh, buildable dirt uh, and sand uh, just south of the Epcot site. And they started digging uh, these uh, uh, lakes, if you would, they were borrow pits and imported really good, really good dirt, really good soil uh, for Epcot to be built on and planted in. And that made a huge, huge difference I'm sure. uh, oh, for the project. Okay. Um, and now if you look at an aerial, you'll see just to the south and west of Epcot, uh, is uh, Caribbean Beach Resort Hotel. Mm-hmm. When you look at an aerial, you'll see two, what look like two lakes, two long lakes uh, going north and south. Um, they've altered the, the shapes, the side shapes a little bit, but those were the, those were the original borrow pit areas. For That's Africa. so funny. I'm glad you brought that up because when we talked to Bob Holland, he was talking about ah. draining the muck from from the lagoon and Epcot and the threat of the muck wave. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So yeah. it sounds like you guys had your, and well, not only that, but having to deal with the possibility of sinkhole there. Is that correct? Well, yeah, there's always that possibility in central Florida or Florida, you know, you, you, you've got limestone uh, down below grade and, and, you know, the aquifer is down there and, you know, it's a you get a shallow ceiling uh, in a in a limestone cave that uh, loses the water pressure or the aquifer drops, and yeah, you've got a chance of you know that ceiling caving in. And where does it go? You know, it just keeps siphoning earth, and you've got a a hole open <laughs> in the mm-hmm. ground. Mm-hmm. So, so as you mentioned, at this time you're not only working on Epcot, but a whole new castle park in Tokyo, uh, which sounds kind of simple for some of the design when you're copying the rides, but you were working in a totally different climate and a new culture. How did you set out to tackle this project? Yeah, it was a different project. Um, first project I've ever worked on that uh, was totally reclaimed. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, the entire site and surrounding sites for the future hotels and so forth. Uh, they built a huge seawall uh, out into Tokyo Bay and uh, they um, they pumped sea, sea bottom up into the inside the seawall and um, brought it up I think eight meters and uh, then the last three meters they barged of soil, good soil you know, we wouldn't. We didn't want anything to do with the 
the materials that came out of the bottom of Tokyo Bay. But <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the, the last three, the last three meters were of the entire over across the entire site um, were barged down the Edo River from the interior interior part of uh, Honshu, the main island where Tokyo is located. Oh, wow. Barged down and then offloaded onto trucks and then the dump trucks went, you know, just across the way to the site and started dumping dirt. And uh, so there's, you know, the, the, we were able to plant in three meters of really good soil for that project. Um, but it was, it had been Tokyo Bay at one time. And uh, so it's a totally reclaimed site. First that I've ever done that for. That's um, remarkable. Well, and, and as Jeff said, you know, this is a totally different climate. It's a totally different yes. culture. Um, yeah. You know, what, what what did what challenges did you face going into that? Well, um, I would say the first challenge we had was was uh, you, go, you know you're doing you're doing work in a different country for one thing a different completely different culture, but the company did whoever is going to be traveling and relocating to Japan the company did a really good job of um, you know getting you ready and um, one of the best books I've ever read on international business. Uh, was uh, and I can't remember the author, but the name of the book was never. It was about doing business in Japan. It was, never take yes for an answer, <laughs> um, because the Japanese don't basically don't have a word for no. You know, oh, wow. they 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 won't say no. Mm-hmm. But never take yes for an answer. Meaning, you know, that you may think that every everybody's bought into something, uh, only to find out later. Well. No, you know, we didn't mean that. We know we oh, don't. Oh, yeah. You know? um, so, you know, there was a lot of that. But I would say the first first thing we had to overcome was um, our counterparts, our Japanese counterparts, the, the fear they had of t- producing a successful project of this magnitude. Mm-hmm. We're talking about... Um, you know, my counterparts, I had three, basically, three field guys, or two field guys, and a consulting land, uh, Japanese landscape architect. And, of course, Bill was was my consultant for horticulture. And they had a consultant, uh, not quite as old as Bill, but he was very well known. And um, and the first thing we did is we brought all these guys over to the United States. And we spent a couple days at Disneyland, and then we got on a plane, we brought them on a plane, took them to Florida and spent a couple, three days in Florida. And, and uh, when they got to Florida, that's when their boots started shaking. <laughs> they, they looked, I mean, Disneyland was one thing, but when we got to the magic kingdom, which the park in Tokyo is basically a, the same size mm-hmm. scope. Uh, they, uh, they, they were just so concerned that they weren't going to be able to do that. We're just so concerned, you know, the, the attention to detail and how beautiful the park is and uh, technical issues right. uh, like Mitsui didn't want to spend any money for an irrigation system. Oh, gosh. Irrigation system. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, but, you know, we we sat down, uh, Bill and I with them before they left for Japan. Uh, he and I hadn't even been to Japan yet. And uh, we said, no, no, it's going to be fine. You guys are going to do great. And we're going to do this together. We're all in this together. And uh, uh, it's going to be great. And you're going to be remembered. You're going to be well-known 
in Japan. That's got to be kind of flattering to you all is to, you know, have them be in such awe of your work. Yeah. Well, it's not just our work is hundreds of other people's work. Of course, of course. You're looking at, but clearly. yeah. Um, So, you know, that, that's was the first thing we had to overcome is that the fear of failure uh, for them. And um, uh, so then Bill and I went to, to Japan and, it was um, in January, I think. It was in January. It was very, very cold. And, you know, you're right. I mean, a cold winter there, the wind comes out of the Siberian plains and down into Japan. And in the summertime, you have the, the, the hot, muggy breeze coming up from the south, which uh, Tokyo Disneyland is at the north end of Tokyo Bay. So, you know, it's carrying salt. You know, it's like living next to the beach. You know, you have mm. a salt on the plant foliage foliar surfaces will burn the plants and so you know you had we you know we had some real challenges that way and again the you know the irrigation <laughs> the irrigation thing the, the only the only commercial a- irrigation application before Tokyo Disneyland in Japan were golf courses hmm. wow mm-hmm. there are no commercial projects no residential projects ever had any any irrigation Um, they never moved specimen trees, uh, the way we do, you know, with the lifting pin method, like we did with Liberty Oak and things like that. They'd never seen that before. What they would do is for a big tree, you know, might be, oh, two foot diameter tree, you know, and they'd, they'd cut that root ball down to about, you know, three or four feet wide. And then they'd hack the tree back to a, to a hat rack. Look like a 25-foot hat rack. Oh, no. They'd haul these, what they called trees down the road, like logs, and that's what they'd plant. Well, then they'd wait 10, 15 years for the tree to leaf out and grow and look like a tree again. Well, we couldn't do that. Right. And uh, so we went through the lifting pin method with them, and and, um, (laughs) – The landscape contractors over there, the Japanese landscape contractors, they had a joint venture team doing the job. And we, we showed them how it was done and they were horrified. They were <laughs> horrified. And, uh, but, but, you know, once we got them adjusted to that and, and putting larger root balls on the trees and, and, and leaving, you know, just doing some, some very judicious snipping for, you know, take a little bit of growth off a tree and, and you arrive and you've got a tree, you know, and, and it'll heal itself. And so, you know, there's some of that. And, and then, then we get word, well, the, the, the stopgap measure for irrigation is we'll only irrigate the jungle and the, and the, around the big river. Hmm. And uh, they were going to do that with, with water barges, you oh, know, oh water, water tanks and water cannons on barges jungle cruise it's a jungle cruise is more like a float boat and they'd throw water up on the plants to wash the salt off and nothing to irrigate the plants per se and we just finally put our foot down and said well and you just might as well not even do this job you know this it's not going to work it's just it won't work and um so they finally they finally said okay well so Disney, Walt Disney World or Tokyo Disneyland has the first commercial landscape irrigation system installed in Japan. 
That's wow. wild. And well, like you said, I had never thought about the fact that it is essentially a seaside resort. And I think about things at the seaside here and, you know, that you yeah. go to the beach, there's not a lot of lush foliage and planting and things like that because yeah. that, that sea air. So how did you, did you have to just select for hardier breeds of things or was it, a technology workaround like the the irrigation or everything. Well, no, it was it was pretty much a, a, a selection. I mean, you had to you had to select a material for the for the climate, and that's number one. The cold hardiness and what would it take. Second was salt uh, salt tolerance, um, and so on the, the south sides of the park, where it would be the first line of defense for, uh, for against salt. You know, we put salt hardy plants you know, all along the south side and the berm and so forth. And, and, and you know, it, it gets less the further away from, from the uh, bay you are, but still, you're, you're still under the same, the same uh, threat of salt damage, uh, even way back further north in the park, uh, away from the bay. But, uh, but yeah, you just have to select your plants uh, based upon uh, your, you know, what you've been given, you know, climatologically. Did you have facilities on the ground to help you prepare for the project? I mean, compared to the tree farms you had in Florida, I'm sure it was very different. Yeah, we had no tree farms. Um, the, the two joint venture companies um, had holding areas on their land, and we would, you know, and, and of course we a lot of a lot of the material was was. Uh, was delivered, you know, like a supply chain just in time. So mm -hmm. you'd, we, you know, we made many, many trips out uh, to tree farms in the countryside. Um, and, uh, uh, and what they do is they prepare them and, and, and it would just arrive, you know, if we needed, you know, 2000 pine trees, and, you know, when this was the planting date, well, they would arrive. And all of that strategy and logistics the joint venture landscape contractors, they took care of all of that oh, okay. for, for specific trees and, uh, you know, high profile trees. You know, we all, we always looked at them once they were delivered to the holding area. Um, and, uh, on, on, you know, offsite, we just, there just wasn't enough room to have a tree farm or any holding area. I mean, the, the, the fledgling landscape maintenance crew, you know, they had a couple of greenhouses and a, and a, in a small office building and that's you know that's still what they have mm -hmm. kind of well, what they have at disneyland you know not much well any other experiences over there that really oh. stand out for you <laughs> yeah a couple of them actually and yeah <laughs> one is uh we were of course faced with you know finding like five thousand pine trees that could be planted um around the big river on Tom Sawyer's Island and the big mm -hmm. river, the berms and things. And, and, uh, so on one trip, uh, I'd usually go over for a week or two and, um, I don't know, a year, year and a half, two years out on the, when I arrived in Tokyo, they, the, my counterparts always had a, uh, an agenda and a schedule for the time I was going to be there. And, and this one was to review, go out and look at uh, the uh, uh, Japanese black pine that they'd found for the big river and, you know, around the screening berms and things. 
And so we met up at uh, Tokyo Station about seven in the morning. Uh, and uh, we got on the train and we went out at, went outside Tokyo. We were on the train a couple hours, um, which, you know, you can get out, out in the rural area pretty quickly and outside Tokyo. But um, we arrived and uh, we were met by a contingent of gentlemen. And um, I, was, I, I was the only gaijin on that trip. Um, and I, I didn't even have uh, an interpreter. Oh, wow. My, my two counterparts, you know, I knew enough pidgin Japanese and they knew enough pidgin English. If, mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the language of horticulture is, is Latin. Doesn't matter <laughs> if Japanese or, or uh, English, you know, the, the language of horticulture is Latin. And um, so we arrived and, and so we, we, they had cars there for us and we all had this caravan of cars and we left the little town uh, train station and we drove for probably 30, 40 minutes and we were up, up in the mountains and um, on this dirt road and we got out of the car and everybody's, you know, kind of, yeah, and, and I'm just looking around at all these trees, these black pines. And, and I said, so have any of these been tagged? I asked my counterpart, you know, which are ours, you know? And uh, he says, well, these are all ours, 5,000 of them. Wow. And I'm looking down the slope and I'm looking up the slope from the road. And they're all, they were great. I mean, they were just, they were growing on a slope, which meant that when they were dug, you know, we, we could plant them with the root ball oriented the way they were grown. Right. Oh, sure. Right. You know, we, I, we weren't going to have, you know, that same rocket ship thing that we had <laughs> Tom Sawyer's <laughs> Island built this new world. And um, so you know, I said, this is great. This is fantastic. You know, 5,000 trees. Perfect. So everybody's laughing and scratching and we take off and we look at a few other things and, Decide, yeah, that'll do. So we leave. We go back to Tokyo. Well, about, I don't know, my third or fourth trip later, maybe nine months later, um, I see this. We're going back to, to review the, the uh, pines, black pines. So we go, same trip, same trip, met the same time, took the train out there, met the same group of guys. Up we go to the mountains. And we get out of the car and I'm thinking, well, this isn't right. I'm looking and, and I'm, I'm in this, this uh, like a nursery, upslope, downslope, everything I see, all these black pines had been kind of poodled up, you know, pom-poms. Mm. You know? <laughs> and I said, I'm looking and you know, every one of them, and they look like they would be perfect for a Japanese garden, you know. And I leaned over to my, everybody's, you know, laughing. This is a big deal, big day. And I leaned over to my counterpart. I said, what is this? What is this? He says, oh, these are ours. I said, and I said, we can't use these. (laughs) And I said, they had, you know, they're supposed to be natural. We can't put Japanese looking trees and, you know, he, he lost the, I mean, the blood ran right out of his face. Oh, no. (laughs) Because he had to be the bearer of bad tidings. Oh, and so he leans over to my other counterpart and says something, and he said something to the next guy, and the next guy who said something to the next guy. <laughs> we're all standing in a circle, and pretty soon 
the, the, the tree farm, the owner of the land, who had, these are his trees, gets to him. Well, he stops, he stops laughing right away. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, he's, he's like, he's on the hook for 5,000 trees that nobody wants. Oh my God. Oh man. And, um, so it was a very, it was, un, it was an uncomfortable few moments. And, and then my counterpart standing next to me, he stepped up and he told him that not to worry that, uh, the Mitsui land company has a lot of projects around Japan and that those trees will be used. Um, oh, well, that's for, good. Yeah. And then he asked him, do you have 5,000 more trees <laughs> <laughs> that, that used to look like these? And the guy, and the guy, you know, he, he bows his head and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah hi, hi, hi. So, so we get in the car and we drive another couple miles and we get out and it's, it looks the same. <laughs> it, it looked like it did nine months ago, you know, is what we were looking for. That's wild. And I said, okay, 5,000 trees. I looked at the owner. I said, no touch. Okay? Right. <laughs> no touch. Maybe Mits I said, maybe Mitsui will pay you a little more if you promise not to touch him. Exactly. <laughs> well, then you just think of all the effort he must have gone to in. Oh, in every one of those trees had been root pruned and they had been, you know, what the, 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 uh, the, the pruning technique, it's called Niwaki, uh, where you kind of bonsai these things up, you know, and end up platforms and meatballs and things like that on the branches. Mm -hmm. But they, they certainly wouldn't have filled a bill for, for, uh, you know, anything around the big river, Tom Sawyer's Island. Or <laughs> it's not very frontier land. Yeah. So, but, um, I, I would say the, uh, it's, it's a little off topic. I mean, it's, it's horticulture and it, and it occurred at a tree, at a nursery tree nursery. One of the, the only other really, powerful experiences for me uh, during that entire project. Uh, we had traveled, you know, again, by train, and we met up with the, the, the owner of a tree uh, nursery, and he had, a, it was a collection. Of, he was like sixth generation nurseryman, and he lived in a 300-year-old thatch roof Japanese home. Wow. And uh, his father was there, and um, his wife and his kids, they all lived together. Multi-generational living is is standard in Japan. And um, so when we arrived, we, uh, we uh, stepped in, he had a stone floor office just off the, the traditional home. Uh, and the traditional home, it's hard to explain, but uh, a Japanese home has this short, uh, platform that goes all the way around the room or all the way around the house. And the shoji screens open onto this platform and the platform is called an ungawa. Hmm. And that's what you sit on to contemplate a garden and so forth. And um, so when we arrived, uh, again, the Japanese tradition is you, you arrive and you sit down and uh, before you do business, you go out to do business, they have tea and, and you to, you know, they want you to rest from your journey and that before you start your business. And so we went into this, into this office and, uh, you know, stone floor and, just plain walls and a couple of metal desks and chairs and an old sofa. And I mean, it looked like a nursery in any place in America. Mm -hmm. And when we walked in, there was this older gentleman sitting uh, on a, on a pillow on the Ongawa. Um, uh, 
uh, in the office, you know, because the office was attached to the house. And um, he uh, he was welcoming everyone. It was the it was the the owner of the nursery's father who had owned the nursery before he'd given it to his son, and uh, and his father had given it to him, and his father had given it to him, and so forth. And and um, again, I was the only gaijin on there, and uh, again, no no interpreter, mm-hmm. and I last one to enter the room and I'm wearing, you know, Western boots and Levi's and a plaid shirt and a down vest and a baseball cap. And, um, I'm six feet tall and with Western boots on, it's probably six, one, mm-hmm. whatever towering above everybody else. So I duck under the doorway and stand up in this room and he's welcoming everybody. And I'm the last one in the room and he looks where at me and he got up grabbed his pillow, opened the shoji screen, stepped inside and slammed the screen shut. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, okay. <laughs> I, I, I was a little embarrassed. I, I didn't know what to do. I hadn't said anything. I, you know, you know. And so we, everybody was a little unsettled by it. But we finished the tea and we went out and we, we bought a number of really lovely, beautiful specimen materials for various parts of the park. So we came back and, and again, the business tradition is you have some tea and you refresh from your being out in the field and doing business before you get go on your journey to return home. So we go back into the same space and the older gentleman is there again, same space, sitting on the same pillow and he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say anything and we're sitting there and doing all the final paperwork and so forth. And, and um, there was a lull in the conversation. Finally, he started to speak very low, very low in Japanese. And uh, everybody, of course, shut up because, that, you know, elders mm-hmm. are premium in, in Japan. You just don't, you don't talk over them. You don't talk, you know, uh, back to them. You, you know, they're, they're very well, they're very highly respected in Japanese culture. So all of these men sitting around this room, they were listening to him and they were, you know, nodding their head and so forth. And, and, um, and I didn't know what was going on, what he was saying. And finally my counter, he stops talking and he looks directly at me. My counterpart leans over to me and he said, um, Mr. Morita would like to know if you would shake his hand. I said, sure, I'll be glad to do that. So I got up took my hat off, bowed to him, and I held my hand out to shake his hand. Now, this is very odd because Japanese don't touch one another. They mm. don't shake hands. Mm. But he wanted to, he wanted to shake, he said he wanted to shake my hand like an American. Well, he didn't, he, he grabbed my hand and he took it and he held my hand in, in his two hands and he looked at the palm of my hand, he looked at the back of my hand, turned my hand over, and then he put his hand in mine like a handshake and we just kind of shook hands. And I went and sat down and I didn't think anything about it. And, and so when we left a few minutes later, we all went, went back to the train station, said goodbye. And we got on the train, on the train, I'm we're riding along. And I, I asked my counterpart and I said, what was that all about? And he said, well, he said, Mr. Morita, since the end of the war has hated Americans. He said, he remembers the day that the emperor uh, was on the radio 
and told the Japanese people that you know they were surrendering, that the Americans had won, and he'd hated Americans the rest of his life. And he said he'd never seen an American up close in his entire lifetime. And he said he knew he was getting old and he didn't want to carry that hatred any longer. Wow. He said he figured you were the only American he was ever going to see in his lifetime before he dies. And he wanted to make peace. That's right incredible. There. Wow. And I'll tell you what, guys, the hair stood up on the back of my neck. Sure. No kidding. And um, so that's probably the most impactful experience of my project life with uh, Tokyo Disneyland. I would imagine so. Well, you know, that's something I've wondered about the Tokyo Project um, happening when it did, when so many of the elder members of the team on both the American and the Japanese side would have come from that generation. Correct. And I just wondered if that ever, I've always wondered if that ever sort of colored the discussion in any way. I mean, knowing how, you know, our grandfather talked about those times, um, I just wondered if any of, any of the people on either side of the, that deal had, you know, feelings about it one way or another. Well, I never heard anything from the Japanese side. I know that card was uncomfortable with, with it. He had been a, a flight deck officer on an aircraft carrier during the war. Um, but, you know, n- nothing overt. There was never any discussion about it. Uh, I, I do know that uh, younger generations, you know, of, of Japanese that I knew there got to become acquainted with, became friends with. Um, I never heard a word about it. Um, if anything was ever said, there was a very high regard amongst my generation, you know, the, the, the generation that came after the greatest generation um, that fought those wars. Um, the, the, the greatest admiration that, that I would hear is about Douglas MacArthur, hmm. saved Japan uh, from being pulled apart. Um, Russia wanted the Northern Islands and China wanted the Southern Islands and and Douglas MacArthur said, no, this is going to remain a, a, a nation, one nation. You're not going to pull this archipelago apart. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's a pretty high regard for Douglas MacArthur by, you know, Japanese people that, you know, that know history, you know, yeah. post-war Japan history. This is such a fascinating period uh, to be in that cultural dynamic. And in that, you were the first if I'm not mistaken, non-Japanese individual elected to the Institute of Landscape Architects in Japan? Japanese, yeah, the JILA, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, what, what was that like? Well, I never went to any meetings. <laughs> <laughs> so but pretty my, good. <laughs> <laughs> but my, uh, my, my counterpart, uh, uh, Yamamoto-san, Norihisa Yamamoto, was my, my landscape architect counterpart on the project, and and uh, he had his own little practice. They were consulting landscape architects to the Mitsui Land Company, and uh, and he he nominated me and uh, uh, sent me a fax or something and said, "Congratulations, you're now been elected a member of the Japanese Institute of Landscape Architects." I, I have a certificate here someplace. I don't know. <laughs> That's possible. <laughs> 
so that yeah that i'm all all told that that must have been a, a pretty impactful project yeah it was it was fun and and um you know the japanese you know they're they're, they're crazy about disney uh, even before you know the park was open i mean they were just they were, japanese are just nuts about disney and disney characters and things and and you know we we uh, uh contracted with a a, a nurseryman Oh, again, outside Tokyo, but not very far, smaller town outside Tokyo, to grow all the topiaries for us. Mm. And um, uh, and we we used, I mean, real topiary, you know, like the, we we uh, sent the drawings for the armatures, for the animals, you know, the dancing hippos and elephants and camels and things. We sent the drawings uh, for the uh, re rebar armatures and uh, to Japan and they fabricated those and put them in big boxes and grew grew the topiary just like we'd grown them for Walt Disney World originally. And um, this uh, nurseryman he he lived in this little town there and he found he found kids were coming you know on the way to and from school they were detouring in through his nursery so they could go look at the at the 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 uh, <laughs> topiary. <laughs> and he was disturbed by that. And I went to, to inspect the growth process one time and he was telling my counterpart that he just can't keep kids out, you know? And, and I said, well, are they doing any damage? And he said, no, he said, they just want to, you know, they want to bring their friends and show them all this. And, and uh, I told him, I said, well, my advice is have them bring their, their parents, <laughs> let their parents see it. And tell them it's for Tokyo Disneyland. CDs <laughs> in Tokyo Disneyland. So make sure that they take you to Tokyo Disneyland. <laughs> exactly. Brilliant. Brilliant. So Tokyo, you get Tokyo open. And then not long after, there's a change in leadership in the company. They get started on Paris and you leave the company. Um, Correct. I read a blurb where you said at the time, you know, there was a change in financial attitudes. Sometimes it seems that we could never make enough money. It was a time of big cultural change at the Walt Disney Company. A lot of veterans leaving, uh, kind of rubbing them the wrong way. I wonder if you could speak to that a bit. Well, it was just a, a time that, uh, you know, that it seemed that the culture was changing. And um, I was at a point where, you know, we, I, I was involved in the very early planning stage of Paris and, you know, Marty, you know, I went to Marty and, you know, I said, gosh, Marty, you know, I've, you know, I, I'm just thinking that maybe there's something else I ought to be doing. And, and he looked at me and he, he said, he said, look, he said, we're just getting this, this thing in Paris up and going. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, an opportunity, you know, it's just a project of a lifetime. And I looked at him, I said, Marty, I said, I think I've had a couple of projects. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it, you know, it's a, that's the way it was. And um, so, yeah, I, I left the company and did some consulting with them occasionally, you know, with mm -hmm. different projects. And so, yep. Yeah. It's a, it was definitely a big cultural shift at that time where, you know, priorities kind of shifted the, the feel of the company seemed to change, but yeah, you went and worked all over the place. Uh, some of the projects I heard about that were interested in were the U S Olympic sites, some 
this Ameriflora yeah. exhibition. Uh, how were those experiences? Well, you know, they're 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 big uh, uh, mass attendance events, and and you know, the work in the, on the uh, Atlanta Olympics was very interesting, um, and um, as was uh, Ameriflora '92, you know, in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, it was the first international flower and garden expo in the United States. And they'd been doing these in Europe every four years since the end of the war. You know, they had a, they, they, whoever the host city was would have an old bombed out rail yard or whatever. And they would have, you know, they'd have this flower and garden festival and turn it into a park and leave it for the city, hmm. the host city. And they'd have a new park. And so, um, Miraflora 92 in, in Columbus, Ohio was, um, Already, uh, the site selection was already a beautiful 88-acre park, a 100-year-old park with a 100-year-old uh, uh, conservatory, crystal, crystal oh, wow. uh, stone and, and glass conservatory. And um, we tripled the size of that conservatory and uh, did a lot of upgrades to the park and uh, new waterways and waterfalls and... Um, and um, I think it was about a $120 million project, which was a lot of money back then. It's wow. Nothing. Yes. But, yeah. Reading about that, it yeah. sounded like such an amazing, like there were just so many different areas of different kinds of plantings and it sounded really cool. Yeah. Six month show. And, you know, there were international gardens and there were corporate gardens and uh, uh, various exhibits and entertainment. And uh, um, Barbara Bush was our, was our patron. Hmm. Patron. Oh, yeah. And, uh, she brought uh, the president and um, uh, to open the event with her, and um, Bob Hope was there, and you know it was uh, quite a quite a big deal, quite a big deal. Six month event, uh, April to October, and um, it was, uh, and the the park that was left behind, you know, all of the assets, the expanded conservatory and so forth, is you know we're all still in operation, and the park's still beautiful. Oh, that's cool. great. So the year of the Olympics, you return as general manager of Disney's horticulture program. So so what brought you back and the organization was switching around at this time? Uh, can you speak to what changed and how you were involved in that? Well, yeah, it was um, it was a time when when uh, they were looking to uh, consolidate some things uh, operationally and they were uh, DDC had been you know, created Disney development company. Sure. They were, you know, delivering projects, primarily resort projects. Uh, they, they didn't do any work inside the berm and the, any of the theme parks, but they were develop, delivering resort projects, you know, and um, uh, there always seemed to be, uh, uh, you know, angst, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. the project delivery and uh, cost cutting that had been done through value engineering and the, in the in the the design and construction phases, and so Walt Disney World, being the end user, you know, uh, saying, "Well, maybe we ought to look at how we how we have these projects delivered, and could we do it in a more seamless way instead of you know you've got these silos, you know, whether it's DDC or WWDI or WED or whatever, you know, they have these projects and." You know, hand them over, throw them over the wall to the construction company who builds it, and then they throw it over the wall to the to the the, the uh, end user, you know, the, the operating side of the business, and 
rather than have everybody at the table at the same time throughout the process. Mm-hmm. So that began to change. And that's when uh, Bud Dare called me and said, hey, it looks like we're going to be changing some things around here. And you've been on the design and construction side. And, and you know, we think you'd be a big asset here on the, on the operating side because you've been through it. And you know how how it all works, and and uh, so I said, uh, sure, why not? And um, so the first thing we were going to do was um, there were four separate operating businesses within the resort division. There were the land, the horticulture groups were were basically resorts and and parks, theme parks, and the theme parks, you know, of course, with the Magic Kingdom and studio and Epcot and so forth and so on. And the resort work was all Lake Buena Vista and all the different resort hotels and properties and golf courses and all those kind of things. And over on the resort side, it was split down even more where they had four separate divisions with or departments within that division. And so the, my first charge, Bud gave me the first charge, was to consolidate those four business operating units into one resort division, which I did, and um, took about I don't know nine months to a year to get it done. So we we uh, you know became you know could skate about skate a bit faster and uh, cleaner operations, better better delivery of services, maintenance services, um, good cost savings, um, and um, you know we eliminated some duplication just because of structure. And uh, about a year, year and a half later, um, Bud and Al Weiss came and said, well, we think we want you to work with Katie Warner over uh, in the parks and we want to put it into one division, one big division, mm-hmm. one division. And so we did. And um, that took about a year and a half, I guess about a year and a half to, to do that. And uh, uh, so it all became one big, one big maintenance. It's Disney's horticulture now. And uh, um, what we first thing we did is we took uh, leadership, supervision, uh, leadership personnel and began to move them around, you know, take some of the parks people and put them over in the resorts and resorts people and parks and, you know, just to start cross pollinating, pollinizing. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, staff and crew and and whatnot so it's interesting to me that they were separate in the first place um were the i don't know was it that different in environment working in resorts than in working on parks well it didn't it didn't used to be you know when when we opened the park the well the magic kingdom and there was the contemporary and the polynesian um Tony Virginia was the, the maintenance manager then, and he had he had all of that. And uh, as the, the resorts grew, you know, they basically just split off, you know, as a business unit. I don't mm. know who decision, um, but they became, you know, almost larger than than the than the parks division as far as uh, person, you know, personnel, labor and equipment and and so forth. So yeah, I mean, I imagine to you coming back, I mean, they, they had started a course of just aggressive uh, development down there with tons of hotels, and uh, they had done, yeah. done celebration as well. Was your 
crew involved in any like land use discussions or identifying kind of resources on property as as part of this? Um, you know, for celebration or for growth? just at the property wide. Well, you know, we always we always tried to have a seat at the table when when there was anything going to be talked about as far as development's concerned. Uh, I'm not saying I can't sit here and say you know it always happened. Right, uh, right. You know, because lots of meetings occur, and you know, sometimes you just don't, don't even know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, always like to to have you know be be present when something like that's being discussed. Oh, it turns out to be a better project. I've always found anyway. Uh, well, you know, the resort it it as Jeff said, it had this exponential growth. So what I guess I rather than how was there a difference in the way? Disney planned and maintained the landscape over the resort due to all this growth. No, I don't think so. I think that that, for example, you know, I think one of the first new projects that was built was, uh, you know, the Grand Floridian, and uh, um, I think that was opened in '88 or something like that. And and then of course you you know you went to the moderate priced hotels, you know, uh, uh, Caribbean Beach and and uh, uh, Port Orleans, Dixie Landings, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all these different product types and uh, sports and, and whatnot. Um, they were viewed as individual projects. Um, and they were, you know, staffing requirements were were planned and equipment requirements were planned. Everything, you know, was planned that way. Uh, but then as we began looking at consolidating these, you know, after, certainly after, uh, we began looking at cross utilization of equipment and do we, you know, do we really need, you know, that many gang mowers? Can we, you know, uh, can, you know, can we cross utilize this equipment and, and uh, same with labor. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but it, it, to that degree, you know, we always took a look at, at the most efficient way uh, to, uh, to get the job done and maintain the quality. You had to maintain the quality. Well, that's what I, I was wondering. I mean, I, I would assume as as the resort grew larger, it would become more difficult to maintain the quality just from you know allocation of resources. Well, it's it's you know the leadership you know as far as show quality assurance and show quality standards. Uh, there's a lot of po- folks that looked at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's me, but even the the line managers. Uh, you know, that, that teared up to me and the, and the assistant managers and the supervisors and assistant supervisors. Um, no, the, the quality is always number one. And, um, you know, if, if there, there's always a challenge, it's always a, a push and pull, you know, with what you need versus, you know, what the company's going to allow. And, um, you know, you know, Jimmy Carter started back in 76 with zero based budgeting and, um, so we we went to that that whole idea within horticulture of basically zero based budgeting. If you know we knew the labor, uh, what what labor was required for you know a hundred feet of edging and X number of acres of, of mowing, um, so many thousands of, of bedding plants and uh, pruning different types of of pruning, whether it's shearing or nipping or just touching once a year, uh, fertilization, all those labor costs, material costs. And what we began doing was building that budget from the ground up for each and every resort and um, and park ultimately. 
And so when we'd go to budget reviews with corporate or with, uh, you know, senior management there in mm-hmm. the world, you know, it, there was no fluff in the budget, you know, and if they didn't like the number well, and they didn't like the number, then you're not going to get what it's going to take to do the job. So it took a lot of, there's no politics in that, you know, and uh, uh, nobody, you know, it was, it was up to them. You know, you can say yes, you can say no. Right. But we had all the background data that right. we know. So Animal Kingdom opens during your tenure in this role and a very different view you probably had of that project than the other right. you know, park projects. Uh, it's kind of a park where landscaping takes on an even bigger role, it seems. Oh, uh, no question. No question about it. What? So how was it set apart from a landscaping planning perspective as compared to the others? Well, I mean, like you just said, I mean, it's, it takes, I mean, it is, it is the leading role uh, of any park I think we've ever done. And uh, Paul Comstock did a great job over there. And um, Dennis Higby, you know, was driving the maintenance and, and they worked very closely together. Uh, and, um, you know, of course, and, and then you've also got a, you know, a crew of people growing browse material for the live critters. Right. I mean, you know, it's not just you, you know, you you need eucalyptus for the koalas and, you know, giraffe and, and, you know, things like that. And, you know, what are you going to do? You you know, you're not going to go to a eucalyptus farm. You have to grow it. So, yeah, it's 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 a a very interesting project. It was a great project to for me. I got to stand aside and watch. Right. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, they did it. They did an absolutely fantastic job. And and even the follow-on additions, you know, uh, Expedition Everest and mm-hmm. other things. I mean, just 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 magnificent. That's really stunning. Uh, now that browse kind of that that took over where the tree farm was. And some of the park did as well, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I yeah. guess with the nurseries growing up, you didn't need those resources as much as you used to. Is that correct? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can, I mean, you can go to Cherry Lake or down to Manny Diaz down in Miami or, you know, whatever you need, you know, you need 200 palm trees, date palms, and you want them all to look alike. He's got them. You know, you just say, I'll take that hundred. Thank you. Different world. Yeah. So you leave Disney again in 2000 and how has your experience at Disney shaped you so far, even after you worked there? Well, it clearly, you know, my involvement in projects and, and uh, it, it, uh, it, it shapes your thinking. It shapes the way you look at, at projects. It shapes the way you can help clients view and see things that maybe they don't even think about on projects. Um, and I'm thinking about end use and my work now is primarily in the senior living arena. Hmm. I'm working on projects and communities, life care communities where, you know, you can, you, it's a, it's a, a large campus or it's a, it's a, uh, a project that uh, is multi-generational. Um, we, we prefer not to work in a behind the gate kind of, you know, 55 and over kind of community. We, we really like to, to work it wherever possible with multi-generational aspects where the campus is open um, or very near 
you know, elementary schools and shopping areas and things like that. But uh, it it just it, it my my view of of project work overall and and what can what can be, what can be. Um, I mean, we designed a a um, memory care garden for dementia and Alzheimer's memory care garden down in uh, on a project in in uh, Fort Myers, and we designed in some rain chains and that, you know, fall into copper buckets that make noises, make sounds, you know, but becomes a sound garden during the rain. Oh, wow. And pop jet fountains, you know, that we use like in the imagination at Epcot, pop jet fountains. Um, And of course these gardens are are designed so that, you know, there's no standing water ever. Um, And they're multisensorial you know, butterfly gardens, you know, so there's some little bit of wildlife in the garden and, and they're designed so that, you know, there's no elopement op- opportunities where guests want to get agitated and want to escape out of the garden. Mm. Um, and they're designed in a manner so that it's easy. There's a nice flow. You know, there's a walking pattern that can be repeated, you know, over and over again and, and, and so forth. And I mean, we even spec, you know, sport deck, you know, that, that rubberized sport deck material sure, uh, yeah. for the walkways, which is stable for people to walk on and wheelchairs to roll on and walkers and so forth. But we've already in our projects, I mean, we've, we've been contacted a number of times about the number of bones that have been saved, you know, from being broken mm. when, when a, uh, a resident would take a tumble on that. So, you know, those are all things that you kind of bring to the table and, um, what you what you want to you know introduce and work with that that makes me think of another question i had which is you know this is kind of like the tilapia question but yeah. <laughs> i feel like you know we as as kids would be introduced to a lot of concepts as landscaping as well but to me it's it, through disney but to me it seemed like disney influenced a lot of landscape design in the latter half of the 20th century to now outside the berm do you find that as well oh absolutely sure sure and and you know that's when when you think about it in in those terms you you think about um um restaurants you know when you, i mean rainforest cafe they're mm-hmm. what are they doing they're creating a an environment, you know, right? Um, and uh, you know, it it doesn't matter uh, retail, your retail experience. It's you know, entertainment and entertainment components uh, and theme components. You're finding it, you know, throughout throughout industry, all kinds of industry. So, uh, and and uh, the senior environment isn't any different, quite frankly. Um, I'm I'm older than many of the residents on projects that I'm working on. Um, And uh, they're not the same seniors. You know, they're not, they're not my dad's senior or, you know, anything or your dad's seniors. They're, you know, they're just, everyone's arriving in retirement now with, um, with a much different expectation Mm -hmm. of what they want in their retirement years. I mean, they're coming with with uh, with theming demands. They're coming with dining option demands. They're coming with uh, recreational environment demands. Uh, 
and you know they're they're just and they and they they also come with a with a sense of it, many of them want to give back uh, to the world uh, through volunteerism and, and so forth, and you know to stay active and and whatnot. So it's a different it's 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 different than that old you know behind the ivy wall rest right. kind of thing. You know. Yeah, I worked at one of these places. Uh, I don't know. It was about a decade ago, but it, it I worked in as a server and I couldn't believe, I mean, these people were more active than I was in my life. <laughs> they were always doing stuff. And, and like yeah. you said, volunteering, they were uh, taking in concerts, everything, you know, it's, it's incredible. Um, yeah. To imagine their, their needs uh, are multifaceted for sure. Yeah. And it's just come, these changes have really just come about in the last decade or decade and a half. And 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 the, the curve continues uh, to to grow uh, in that regard. And that you know, we have a number of our clients are older facilities. You know that where uh, the rooms are not grouped in a neighborhood that share a living room. You know, they're they're the hallway with rooms off of a hallway and a nurses station at the end. And you know, I mean, they're just grim, just grim. Mm-hmm. But that's the way they were building them. And, you know, I call it, I call it warehousing, you know, senior warehousing. Mm-hmm. You're just warehousing these people. And um, somebody goes into a room and plays the piano, you know, at two o'clock every day. You know, it's just, and those kinds of facilities are either dying and closing um, or they are investing heavily in new environmental uh, growth, which most often ex- includes uh, the connection to the outdoors, you know, and, and, and biophilic design is, there's tons and tons of research on biophilic design and, and how important nature is and the connection with nature with humans. And, uh, you know, that's, that's part of our design as well is, you know, how, how does the, how do the residents relate to nature um, and the arrival sequence? And, you know, you only have one chance and, and usually someone who's deciding to move into a, 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 a senior living environment, a campus or life stage or, or, or continuing care, um, they're not the one making the decisions. Mm-hmm. The, the kids are making the decisions, the daughter or the son or the son and the daughter of the future resident. And so what's really important is is how your facility is is represented from the arrival sequence, and to, to, to from the, and the, to the front door, and from the front door through uh, into the facility. And what is what are your views out to nature from inside the facility, and how well connected uh, are the residents and the staff to nature? And um, that it's it's becoming more and more important in that arena. What's interesting to me is how, uh, you know, talking about how much this circles back to Disney being ahead of the curve. Uh, uh, What you're talking about sounds exactly what in the 70s they were talking about for Lake Buena Vista, what the aspirations were then for living there. Uh, It's it's much the same thing. They were really ahead of the curve on that. Yeah, I think so. And, and, you know, the whole the whole notion that, that, you know, that you could live and work 
you know, there and, you know, and, and have one, you know, like the Epcot, you know, the old Epcot model, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, um, but, you know, then with, once you have residents and you have voters and, right. um, <laughs> and that doesn't fly with, with a corporate, you know, mission. And, uh, but, but you're right. Lake Buena Vista did provide, it was going to be the, the so-called residential or resort community to Walt Disney world. And, with uh, retail and food and beverage and uh, lodging and, and all those kinds of things. And, and of course, early on the multimodal station, you know, with, with uh, train and Stoleport and whatnot. Well, as you look back as, cause we've run through a lot of it with you, uh, what, this doesn't have to be inside of Disney. What are some projects that you are most proud of? I think Ameriflora was one outside of Disney. Um, I think within Disney, um, gosh, Epcot, you know, just stands out. And, and also Tokyo, because Tokyo was our first international park mm-hmm. um, outside the U.S. Um, just so many. It's hard to hard to put my finger on just one. Yeah. yeah. Well, what is it about Epcot that stands out in your mind of being the, the, the biggest achievement of that? I think, I think it was you know, the ability to, to pull off a project twice the size of the Magic Kingdom mm. on one site with such a diverse uh, design palette from Future World to World Showcase and within World Showcase, such a diverse uh, international theming palette um, and you know, the, just the chance to work with so many wonderful, fantastic people. I mean, engineers, architects, technicians. I mean, just incredible, incredible folks. Just fantastic. That's and wonderful. All, all of the, all of my colleagues at, at WDI, I mean, uh, WED even, you know, we still stay in contact with Facebook groups and, and whatnot. And, um, um, you know, just People that I that I got to know, even back at Disneyland in 1964, I'm still friends with, you know, and uh, we have uh, these life experiences, uh, whether working at Disneyland, driving a monorail or conductor on a steam train or loading people in a Matterhorn sled. You know, you, you <laughs> when you do these things or you build a park together. Uh, you design a park or you, you build a park. Everybody goes through the same experiences and, you know, you, you have those shared experiences and, uh, you know, nothing needs to be explained when you're together. Absolutely. Well, and you see that in the way these groups remain tight. Uh, it seems like they're always having, especially I feel that Epcot Tokyo era team uh, always having reunions uh, always, you know, having events and, uh, it, I, I think just going through that experience together really builds a bond. Sure. I, I, you're absolutely right. And I know the WDI alumni group, you know, they, they still, they had to stop because of COVID, but, you know, for a long time, and I think they're starting it up again, um, either later this month or maybe September, um, or maybe October. I'm not sure. I guess the Delta variant is going to determine it, but sure. uh, lunch, a monthly lunch uh, where everybody gets together. Uh, the old uh, 
WED WDI, you know, alumni, which uh, I was able to attend one a couple of years ago. Oh, that's great. My wife and I were out on the West Coast for a, for a wedding, and um, it just happened to occur a few days after the lunch. So we went early, and uh, it was great to catch up with a lot of folks. Oh, it's a lot of fun. Well, you know, you've mentioned uh, a little bit about what you're up to today. We always like to give folks we interview a chance to plug what they're doing now. Are there any projects uh, you'd like our listeners to know about? Uh, right this minute, there's nothing I can talk about. <laughs> <I love laughs> that this. is sometimes the case. I understand. Yeah, we've we've got uh, we've got a number of projects on the burner, and um, again, they're in they're in uh, senior living, uh, but uh, senior living environments or arena, and uh, it's a, it's become a very competitive. Uh, market and um, so it's not uncommon for us to have to sign a confidentiality agreement on sure. things we're doing. So understood, but keeping keeping very busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we, it's we're very busy, and um, you know it's it's hard to believe. I'll, I'll little shameless plug here. I'll be seventy five uh, in October. There we go. That's the kind of plug we need. I just uh, <laughs> I can't believe it. You know. Who'd have imagined? But anyway. Well, that's uh, that's wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for uh, you know sharing all this with us. It's it's been uh, really interesting. Great. Well, I, I appreciate it, guys. You both, you guys are great interviewers. You toss out some questions, and boy, that just brought back memories. And <laughs> well, thanks. Well, any great. you know any time. You think of anything, because I guarantee you, between Jeff and I, there are about probably 50 pages of uh, questions we could probably think up to ask. <laughs> you know, this stuff is so fascinating, and, uh, you know, it's such a, we talked about this in the last episode, such a fundamental element of Disney parks, and, you know, our parents are both uh, really hardcore uh, <laughs> Uh, home gardeners and mm. you know when you grow up with that eye uh, for these things in the parks it's it's such a fundamental element of it yeah yeah no you're right you're absolutely right Mark. brings a lot of joy to a lot of people so thank you so much for everything you've done and thanks for joining us good good to be with you So that wraps up our second part of our Scott Gerard interview. Michael, I could have talked to Scott for, you know, four more hours and maybe we'll have to have him back at some time. I know I, if, if Scott is willing, I have a feeling he's going to be a regular visitor if he's at all willing, because you know, so, so many stones left to turn over there. That's right. I know. Always good to talk about Epcot. We, we haven't talked as much about Epcot yet but we will at some point but oh it's 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 gonna happen i know yes uh so michael what's coming next on the radio hour next month next month we're visiting one of our favorite areas in the vacation kingdom uh you know earlier in this year we talked a little about the delights of the seven seas lagoon this time we're heading into bay lake has a number of opportunities of its own for fun and frolic 
And so we're going to take a look at some of the history, some of the fun of Bay Lake. Yeah, Bay Lake is my favorite place, probably, if I had to pick one. Uh, at Walt Disney World, sitting there, you know, Fort Wilderness, going out on Bay Lake. Doesn't get much better than that. So we're looking forward to discussing that through a couple of different lenses. Yeah. And Michael, this is the time where we check in and see if there are any new Patreon subscribers. We do have a new member of our Patreon society. We'd like to welcome April, who joined up. Uh, thank you for your support. In addition to helping us produce these episodes and do all that we do, you're also... Uh, getting early access to episodes, maybe some other extra behind-the-scenes content, and at the silver level, of course, we have our monthly live stream. So uh, thank you very much for joining up. We really appreciate it. Yeah, we appreciate all of you who have signed up. Uh, some of you got some some goodies in the mail recently. So Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting stuff. Uh, if you're interested in finding out more about that, you can check it out at patreon.com slash progress city USA. And uh, thanks again to those who have already contributed. You can reach out to us at podcast at progress We love to hear your thoughts about our episodes. Any uh, suggestions for the future are also welcome. You can also be in touch with us on Twitter Michael is at Progress City USA. I'm at Jeff G. Crawford. And now Instagram at Progress City USA. So lots of ways to check us out or talk to us or what have you. Give us feedback. You could also give us feedback on, you know, your podcast platform, the iTunes store, rate and review, all that good stuff. We, uh, any of it is welcome. We love to hear from you. So with all that said, we look forward to seeing you out there on a pontoon boat on Bay Lake, right in the middle of Bay Lake, USA, next month. Thanks for listening. Take care.